Welcome to the Safeguarding Podcast. In each episode, we discuss a different topical safeguarding issue with a range of different guest speakers. Please be aware some of this content is sensitive and listener discretion is advised. Hello everyone, welcome to the Safeguarding Podcast. My name's Georgia, I'm the content manager here at the Safeguarding Company. I'm absolutely thrilled to be joined today by Sarah Lewis. Welcome Sarah. Thank you, it's a pleasure to be with you Georgia. No worries. Sarah, do you mind just telling us a little bit about you and your background within the sports sector? Well, certainly sport has really basically been the centre of my life since I was a small child and uh, I had the opportunity to become a full-time athlete, uh, participating in alpine skiing. I reached the level where I uh, had the honour to represent Great Britain at the 1988 Olympic Winter Games in Calgary, Canada. And uh, this really... uh, I would say led the pathway for the rest of my life. After becoming an Olympian, and that's something that stays with you the rest of your life, I, I spent uh, several years as an entrepreneur working within the skiing and the sports sector on various different projects, uh, mostly connected to the media, to marketing and communications, public relations, uh, commentating. Uh, and then as a volunteer, I supported the regional junior team where I'd grown up, the English junior ski squad. And uh, as a result of that, I then received a a request, um, I guess these days you call it headhunting, to become the Alpine director for the national governing body for skiing, the British Ski Federation, as it was known at that time. And uh, I took on that position of a brand new national federation and... um, took charge of alpine skiing there. Uh, And during that period, I then met uh, the various different personalities involved at the International Federation and was recruited there. And my first position there in 1994 was as the coordinator uh, for the Continental Cup Series. That's the level below the World Cup Series. And after four years, the then Secretary General of the organisation, he uh, was elected as the President and uh, asked if I would take over as the Secretary General. So after two years of being the director, I then became the official Secretary General. During that time, I think, uh, let's touch on safeguarding. Uh, This evolved as a very important uh, aspect of what we did at the International Ski Federation. When I reflect on on, uh, my childhood and my pathway uh, as a skier, there are certainly incidents where I can point out that say, that is a safeguarding concern. That should have been recorded. Yeah. And, um, but you just, uh, that time you accepted it. That was how it was. And uh, especially as a little girl, um, in a very much a male-dominated world of sport, of international sport, uh, coaches, support staff, some of the officials, administrative officials... They, uh, they, they were women, but um, certainly not persons who you had day-to-day collaboration with that you would reach out to. So you're very much isolated. But the International Olympic Committee, the IOC, they introduced uh, safeguarding guidelines mm-hmm. for the entire Olympic movement. Now, their stakeholders are the international federations, the National Olympic Committees, and the organising committees of the Olympic Games. They're the three main stakeholders. And as the international federations, we then were very much part and contributed to establishing 
those safeguarding guidelines and I was in the working group responsible for doing so and then immediately afterwards implemented them at the International Ski Federation. And uh, then they became compulsory for our member national associations. Amazing. Now, for some of the uh, some of the, the nations, they already had rather sophisticated systems within their own countries, and therefore they uh, really were were already on the pathway. They had the necessary procedures in place and responsibilities, and were aware. But for some of the smaller national associations, this was effectively all the information they were going to receive. And so it was very helpful. We did workshops, appointed a, a lead welfare officer who was actually the vice chair and still is of the medical committee uh, and uh, a GP by trade. So we were involved the right people. And uh, also all of the, the staff within, within the organisation, even though as the International Federation you're not directly working with the athletes insofar as they're not your members. You are working with the athletes because at the end of the day, you're responsible for the sport. You're guardians of the sport. And the most important thing is that the athletes uh, really um, feel, feel comfortable, that everything yeah. is done with the focus on the athletes, that they uh, are the centre of the attention. No, that's definitely very important. So in regards to safeguarding within the sports sector, what do you think are some of the main safeguarding issues that are currently occurring within sports? Well, certainly, sport, like all other sectors of society, are responsible to ensure that every participant, every child, has the right to participate in a safe environment. Yes. That is absolutely fundamental. That's a non-negotiable and sport has that responsibility too. And therefore, they've got to be regulations, processes, procedures. But most important of all, there's got to be a culture within the organisation that respects this is our fundamental goal. Yes. We need to ensure that every child, every participant, whether it's at a recreational level or whether it's at full-time and professional level, Every participant must know that they will participate in a safe environment and their parents, their guardians, their loved ones, they must be confident too. No, of course. So moving on to how organisations run within the sporting sector, what do you think organisations need to do to ensure the coaches and the volunteers and the people who are within the organisation are suitable to work with children and young people? Well, the obvious uh, thing, of course, is that they must have uh, serious background checks. Yeah. That's uh, without a doubt, and that must be for every person who is coming into contact with, uh, with youngsters, with children, with athletes at any level. Mm. But then it's the culture of the organisation. It means that from the top down, that the leaders are all making sure that safeguarding is absolutely on the agenda. 
Exactly. And it's dealt with um, really within the culture of the organisation. So it's not, oh, yeah, well, that's for the lead welfare officer and we don't have to get involved. That's not our problem. It's not Uh, our job role. Exactly. Our our job is just to run competitions and make sure that they're done in the most exciting, the best possible way. No, it isn't. It's all of our responsibilities. If we have any concerns, uh, if there are any issues that you feel, even with colleagues, And certainly when it comes to working with elite athletes, where they're very, very sensitive and fragile as well, and there's the mental health aspects, there's what that can drive you to. And what's the difference between elite sport and sport for recreational, sport for children, club sport? Well, the main difference is, is that at an elite level, it really is the centre of their lives. Yeah. Children, it's one part of their life. It might be the, I hope, the most fun part and the thing that they enjoy the most. Uh, that would be uh, terrific. And especially uh, if it's winter sports, from my perspective. <laughs> but all sport Not is great. Not biased at all, are you? <laughs> Not at all. Not at all. All sport is great. And so this is very important. When it is the centre of your life, As an elite athlete, this really, yeah, it's what drives your life. And uh, that one one hundredth of a second from the Olympic gold or the silver medal can make such a huge difference. So dealing with those pressures, so having the right environment around you. Yeah, the right support system. Absolutely. So the other concern, very important concern, is the fact of the amount of time that you spend when it is the centre of your life as an elite athlete. There are certain sports where you can do that locally. And there are other sports where you need to travel. There are other sports when uh, winter sports, uh, when you're coming from Great Britain, is an example. You're basically living away from home for 11 or 12 months. If you've got the necessary resources, you may be able to come back home and, and visit occasionally. But um, effectively, in order to be successful, you're going to spend a lot more time away from your home environment and you're going to be doing it with other people. And for sure, I, when I was growing up, I spent much, much more time with my team colleagues, with the coaches than I did with my parents, with my family. I know them much yeah. better. And the trust that you're putting in those uh, persons It's very, very uh, significant. There are some sports as well where you're dealing with minors. Yes. At an elite level. There are some sports where uh, it's predominantly of one uh, gender uh, as well. And um, it's only really been recently in terms of having requirements or having even encouragement and systems and the opportunities for both genders to be encouraged on the coaching front. I mean, skiing is a case in point because you're spending so much time away. It's not exactly conducive to be a coach when uh, you've got a family. And there you need to make sure that um, the parental duties are handled in such a way that, well, mum is going to be on the road for 10 months. So um, uh, how's things going to work there? Exactly. So that's why there's been a a prevalence of of, uh, men who who coach in the sport. 
uh, when you have sports that where you, where you travel so much uh, and um, that's kind of the tradition that uh, is the maternal function to stay at home and and take care of the the children while we're talking about coaches I know um, the White Review has recently been released in the UK, which is an investigation into UK gymnastics and British gymnastics. One of the things they talked about is the culture among coaches. A lot of coaches used to be gymnasts themselves and sometimes training that they underwent and things they saw their own coaches do then translates into their own coaching. So sometimes problematic behaviours get passed down to different coaches and into the new athletes. How do you think we can prevent that? Yes, the White Review has been very revealing, certainly. And to, uh, I think it's a, it is important to underline that this was women's gymnastics. Of course. And uh, with men's gymnastics at a competitive level, the elite level, uh, they, uh, they begin much later. They're participating in the Olympics and the World Championships at 18 years old. And that can also be an important factor. I mean, the International uh, Gymnastics Federation, FIG, they've increased the age fairly recently for the women to 16. But nevertheless, this means that the main part of their training in order to become elite athletes, uh, which is probably for 10 years before then, that um, they really are small children. Yeah, it's their childhood, isn't it? They spend it training. Absolutely. And certainly when a lot of the coaches were competing themselves, uh, safeguarding was not on the agenda. It's a different time now, isn't it? It's very much a different time. And that's why it needs excellent guidance. It needs expertise, which uh, is is up to date. And uh, it can't all be about, well, it was good enough for me. I had to suffer and I think sometimes people think that because the coach is getting good results, it justifies negative coaching, which we, we now learn doesn't, it doesn't balance out, does it? Well, the fact is that when the coaches are getting good results, when they're causing such distress for the athletes, they could probably get better results if the athletes were happy. Exactly. Because the talent is there obviously in the athletes and yes there is a balance at elite sport in terms of you do need to push the athletes certainly there are a lot of athletes I mean there really are a lot of athletes I can certainly uh, uh, I didn't need to be pushed Uh, certainly not quite the opposite I mean I realized that the harder I work uh, the luckier I get that's the expression right but basically the harder you work the better you get Uh, the repetitions uh, and um, striving for perfection. So you do need to work hard. And I think um, there is nothing more frustrating. And I can talk about that from when I was the Alpine director uh, for the British Ski uh, Federation. There's nothing more frustrating than seeing a very talented athlete who basically uh, laissez-faire is... is not committed, is lazy, and um, just shows up and um, shows how talented they are. Uh, Whereas if they worked a bit harder and uh, they really were focused and uh, uh, were able to maximise their talent to a greater extent, that they could have even achieved more. 
I guess that's why the role of the coach is so important, like you said, to balance out the athletes that might need to be pushed a little bit more versus the athletes who train a little bit too hard and need to be brought back so that they can rest and recover so that they can work to the best of their ability. Because I think everyone knows when you're overworked and your body is injured and you don't let those injuries recover, you're not going to perform at 100% either. There is difficulty, you know, with peer pressure and also the pressure on yourself that you think you think that by taking a day off, uh, that by not com- training uh, and having to, to sit out of competitions, that you're going to lose fitness. Mm. You're going to lose uh, ground on your peers, uh, be it uh, within your team, uh, be it your competitors, be it internationally. They're all working hard. They're all uh, able to train in these fantastic conditions. And I'm injured. I'm going to go backwards. I'm not going to have the same ranking. And these things really uh, play on you. And that's why uh, athletes want to come back too early or they push themselves too hard and cause injury. So these type of of behaviours are things that the coach and the people around them need to recognise because they certainly have a a major effect and uh, you can push yourself just so hard that you really can't do anything and destroy yourself. Yeah, and I guess it's important for them to have that support network who can go in to try to help them when, like you said, it gets a bit too much. Yeah, certainly. And, you know, it's the same for children as well. Uh, For children, for youngsters, for elite athletes, that the coach plays such an important part in their life in terms of the decisions that they are taking, in terms of how they make them feel, that they do carry a lot of power. Mm. And if this person there are any concerns in terms of abusing uh, children who are very, very vulnerable or uh, athletes as well, because they are so dependent on that person in terms of helping them enjoy themselves when it comes to children or um, uh, progress in their lives, progress in their careers when it comes to full-time and professional athletes. And uh, unfortunately, we've seen too many cases of uh, of uh, people who have who have abused that privilege that they have of working yeah. with children. We've taken advantage they have, of yes. their position to harm children and young people, definitely. Yeah. And the leadership of the sports federations, of the sports organisation, the same as the leadership within schools and with other uh, sectors of society, have got to be sensitive to it. They've got to be aware of it and they need to make sure that the culture in the organisation goes right across the organisation. Yeah, all the values need to be reflected from every member of the organisation. That's it. It's not just a case of, oh, well, we've got a lead welfare officer. They can take uh, charge of it. Uh, And and that's not the attitude you need from the leaders of the organisation. You need to make sure that everybody is aware of their responsibilities. We always like to say at the Safeguarding Company that just because you've got one person who, like you said, might be the welfare officer or the safeguarding lead, it doesn't mean that the safeguarding is all put on their shoulders. It's the job of everyone in the organisation to be on the lookout 
to report things that they see, things they might be concerned about, so that we're spreading the workload and everyone understands their responsibility for keeping children safe. It's exactly, you've hit the nail on the head, Georgia, yes. (laughs) Um, We've talked a lot about elite and professional sports. I wanted to ask you what the big differences are between safeguarding and these elite um, organisations versus local clubs and school clubs. And one of the ways I can think about it is we were talking before about recruitment and making sure the people who are working there are appropriate to work with children. A lot of school clubs will have volunteer parents who come on to coach. I remember like my mum, I played netball when I was younger and she was our coach. No one ever did a DBS check on her. This was, oh goodness, how old am I? This was 17, 18 years ago now. So I like to think times have changed, but what do you think are some of the differences between professional and non-professional sports? Well, yes, it's the time. It's basically the uh, the role it's going to play in the life of uh, of the participants, really. That when it comes to um, recreational sports for children uh, who are going a couple of times a week to do different activities, and hopefully the more the better, balancing within their lives, of course, but hopefully course. they enjoyed enough that they're, they're saying, Mum, Mum, Dad, Dad, please take me to sports. It's my favourite. I like it. And there are so many fantastic qualities that you learn from sport for the rest of your life. So I uh, just want to give that a plug. Of course. That uh, it does play an important part of your upbringing, of your education, and you can gain so much from sport, especially for non-academic children. Well, definitely. Like teaches you about teamwork, about working together. Like you said, it teaches you about pushing yourself a little bit further. I think sports are a very important part of growing up. About discipline yeah. and behaving yourself. I heard a, a fantastic... Um, a message on a podcast this morning uh, when I was out uh, having my morning exercise and it was, well, oh, if I am disciplined myself, then it means that nobody's going to scream and shout at me and discipline me and tell me I've got to do this and do that. Uh, and this is what the uh, uh, the expert who was on uh, the podcast today said about... Um, Uh, about one of his kids and uh, it was so nice to hear it so okay oh well that sounds pretty cool so he's had any responsibility that's it that's it yeah so uh he's become a very disciplined child because he realizes that if he's disciplined and does things in the right way taking ownership taking responsibility for his actions He's not going to get told off and shouted at by um, parents, adults, teachers, coaches. And uh, so when it comes then to the club level where you're basically serious, that means you're participating regularly and uh, you want to aspire to a higher level. Uh, That's generally the case. The reason why you join a club can also be for social reasons um, and uh, that your friends are doing it. And that's also great, too. But if you're a club member who really wants to get further in your sport, uh, then you really are willing to push yourself Mm. and um, perhaps do everything it takes and uh, make sure that the coach uh, is going to support you and encourage you and um, can make you vulnerable. It certainly can. And then when you get to the very top level, to the elite level, where one hundredth of a second can mean you get selected for the Olympic team or not, uh, which uh, 
happened to me actually for the 1984 games, the ones before the ones I, uh, I participated in. Originally, there were two of us who were neck and neck uh, and I wasn't selected. Um, my, uh, my rival, she had won one of the major competitions, the national competitions, and I won the other one. But um, fraction of a second yeah. difference in terms of the, uh, the winning margin from those two competitions. And so it was one spot and she went. So uh, you, have to, you have to deal with that. Uh, and you need the right people around you who can help you cope and say, well, there's another Olympic Games in four years' time. <laughs> Do you think that just puts a lot of pressure on people? Like, I understand at an elite level it's what you want, and when you want something you've got to work hard towards getting it, but at the end of the day, at what point does it become dangerous for one's mental health to put that much pressure on yourself to qualify and to win and to keep winning? That's a very good point, and uh, it's, uh, it depends how you approach it. And a good coach, and what's important for the athlete is to understand that it's not only about that uh, Olympic medal or the chance to participate at the Olympic Games and that everything else is meaningless, but actually what is the most meaningful thing is the process, is everything that you do in order to achieve that goal and if you do it in the right way, it will be so important for you because you will gain far more uh, from actually training in the right way, from becoming an elite athlete, from improving all elements of your performance. And when you embrace that, that's the important thing. And then, yeah, if you make it to the Olympic team, that's uh, the outcome that you were striving for, but you've enjoyed the journey so much, you've learned so much from the journey, you've profited from it, that it's been the most fantastic experience. And uh, that's what's going to stay with you for the rest of your life, because you've become a, a better person, you've become stronger, you've become uh, an, an outstanding uh, a member of the team. And um, yeah, if you achieve that ultimate goal, that's the icing on the cake or perhaps even the cherry on the icing on the cake. <laughs> it's like they always say, it's about the journey, not the destination, isn't it? Like you said, if you grow and you learn so much on the way, it doesn't really matter what happens at the end. Um, while we're on this topic, we should probably talk about times when athletes have taken a step back and said, for my own mental health and well-being or my physical health injuries, I can no longer participate in this. Why do you think we, as a society, allow people with injuries to not continue? But mental health, we see that as like, a, oh, why are you not going to compete because of your mental health? Like the most recent example is Simone Biles at the recent Olympics. I think you had an example from one of the Winter Olympics as well. One of the skiers, I believe, who was set to win everything and who said, my mental health isn't good, I need to back out. Why is there so much backlash around them trying to take care of themselves? Well, that certainly was the case because this was never, mental health was not seen as a, uh, as it were, an, an injury, uh, uh, something where you need time out in order to be able to build yourself back up. Uh, mental health was seen as a weakness and you've got to push yourself through it. What's wrong with you? Uh, there's nothing wrong with you. You're not hurt. You're not injured. Come on, deal with it. It's all in your head. <laughs> Shake it's it off. It's all in your head, absolutely. But this has changed yes. completely. And 
to have high-profile athletes like Simone Biles. We've also seen it with several high-profile cricketers who took time out, uh, who took uh, a season off uh, in order to deal with their mental health and then came back. And uh, also there are several elite athletes and, and, and people from different sectors of society, actually well-known uh, personalities who've come out and explained safeguarding issues that have happened to them, which have then caused them in later life uh, um, issues with their mental health. Yes. And uh, also in sport. And the fact is now that people are coming out and talking about it, which has been what stimulated others to say, that is why I'm having uh, concerns. That certainly could be. I'm going to talk about it. Yeah. Because you didn't feel comfortable in the past to talk about it. When I was growing up as a youngster, I can really look back and say, well, I for sure couldn't say anything about how I was treated by those uh, that coach uh, because, I mean, I wouldn't have been selected and I'd have been left out of the entry list for that international competition or I wouldn't have been taken on that training camp or got the good equipment. and So there was fear, it was fear was motivation. Fear. Absolutely, yeah. uh, very much. And that's changed a lot. Good. Uh, totally. And, and really, uh, you know, we refer to it really as the dinosaur times uh, that, that used to exist back then. But I think also even a lot of those coaches who were youngsters perhaps at that time uh, have grown and evolved and developed and listened and the relationship with athletes has become totally different. And instead of uh, having to uh, reprimand them for talking about a problem, uh, it's more a case of let's work through this. How do we solve this problem? I think the athlete voice is now more prominent in which we, have, we do listen more, hopefully, when people speak up. Absolutely. And... The point is, is to have the right culture in the organisation so that you feel comfortable in doing that. The athletes feel comfortable in doing it. And not only the athletes, but also the support staff, because it can also be a strain being away from, uh, from family and uh, being away from home for long periods. You know, I can uh, recall very well that um, when I was working at the International Ski Federation, one of our responsible directors for a competition circuit, had an issue. Uh, his wife had uh, mental health issues and clearly this was playing on his mind and uh, this affected his performance. And, and whilst his responsibility in terms of running the competitions is very much focused on ensuring that the competitions were safe and that they were carried out at the highest level, of course, but the safety element was such a factor too that uh, I said to him, listen, you need to take care of your family, of your mental health, and it doesn't matter that we're here at the Olympic Games, which we were, you need to get home and we'll deal with it. And this was very, very important with three young kids and uh, for his wife and for her family as well, that they saw that he was taking care of it. And normally to step out of the Olympics, that would be, well, wouldn't have happened in the past, let's put it like that. No, definitely not. I think hopefully for the future, though, it sets a good precedent that you need to take care of yourself first. And 
like you said, it's not about letting other people down. It's just about, you know, if you're not okay, then that needs to be the first thing that we look after. Precisely. I like to think it's becoming more compassionate now, isn't it? Less focused on you're letting us all down if you don't compete and more of, well, there's another opportunity. There'll be more chances to compete. Yes, indeed. You know, it's it's being empathetic. Exactly. And uh, I can also recall, for example, um, the president of the organisation, uh, who's now no longer with us, but um, his expression was, no news is good news. So it meant that if any of the competition directors didn't uh, call in, then everything was fine. Whereas having been a competition director for the first four years at the International Ski Federation, and then previously the role that I had with the British Ski Federation, I knew very well that when you were isolated on the circuit and you were responsible that things ran properly, from time to time, you just like to be able to clock in and to check in and that people knew, yep, we're doing okay. We've had some challenges here and here, uh, but... But just to be able to talk to people and rather than have this little disconnected world. And yes, you had your circuit that uh, you were traveling with and so on. But you needed to know from the leadership of the organization that, yep, they're okay with what they're doing. And what I used to do was I, I would check the schedule of everybody. When were they traveling? Then on to the next competitions. And of course, when there are any issues, you know, we would deal with it uh, immediately. But I just would always clock in with them on uh, a regular basis every few weeks and just to say, how are you doing? And uh, how's the family? How's uh, uh, the rest of your team? Is everybody okay? And this was um, before sort of uh, messaging and WhatsApp and social yeah. media groups <laughs> and things. But um, uh, and this was you know, dodgy mobile connections traveling between countries and things. But when they're in the car and driving long distances, I wanted to make sure that they knew, hey, someone's I'm here, looking out for you. Yeah, and uh, you know, let's let's just talk about how you are, uh, because I know the pressures that you're under, and uh, let's uh, let's deal with that. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Sarah. It's been really amazing to have this conversation with you and to get into all your experience within the sports sector. Um, can you tell us some of the work you're currently doing in case people want to get in touch with you about any of it? Yeah, thanks, Georgia. Uh, I think I would like to um, to say that one of the things that's going to improve safeguarding within the sports sector is with professional organisations like the safeguarding company coming in and providing services. Definitely. Because at the end of the day, you are going to employ the best possible coaches and support staff to work with the sport at whatever level. Now, they're not going to have all of the expertise in safeguarding. But when there is such a fantastic solution as, uh, as uh, the safeguarding company provides, then you can ensure that they will receive the necessary training, that there will be processes and systems and expertise in place to ensure that the organization is safe. Exactly. And that they can also reach out to people and to uh, to get support and to get help and how do you uh, I'm going to deal with this one and do you think this is a challenge and uh, would you have any advice uh, and with the the team here who are really expert in the field that that will make a big difference so I, I just wanted to wrap up by saying that before wonderful uh, before talking about myself <laughs> 
And having served for 20 years, uh, 22 years actually, as director and then secretary general for 20 years of the International Ski Federation, uh, then uh, I concluded my, my mandate uh, with the organization and worked uh, for nearly a year for the Chinese Winter Sports Association to um, prepare for the Beijing 2022 Olympic Winter Games, which was a, an extremely special experience, of course. And uh, with uh, COVID, all the challenges that that brought, and uh, with introducing a relatively non-traditional sport in quite a number of them into China was really yeah. outstanding uh, because they certainly have drive and commitment to sport and um, their motto was spare no efforts and uh, there's a level of spare no efforts but I can assure you that they do that at the very highest <laughs> level of sparing no efforts and uh, now moving forwards I'm involved with various different uh, projects and activities within sport uh, safeguarding being one of them it's something that's very important to me uh, education uh, and uh, sport is an education for life and I believe that we can really improve society uh, through sport and sport and education are intrinsically bonded and they can uh, very much improve society everybody is equal and everybody should have an equal chance both in sport and in education and in life to be honest <laughs> absolutely in life too and um, yeah so many different activities many different projects advising consulting and getting involved as well and rolling my sleeves up and so I'm looking forward to yeah engaging with the rest of the world and uh, very happy for anybody to get in contact with me check out my LinkedIn profile and my website and Sarah Lewis global sports leader and I'd be, uh, yeah, delighted to hear about what they're up to. Perfect. And for everyone listening, we'll make sure that Sarah's website is included in the show notes of today's episode. And thank you, Sarah. It was really lovely talking to you today. Thanks again to everybody. Cheers. Thank you for listening to the Safeguarding Podcast. For resources and more information about our safeguarding solutions, please visit thesafeguardingcompany.com.